0: Listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now, this week's sermon in the series Identity A Study on the Book of Ephesians. with me. Father, I come again standing in brokenness and weakness before you and before your people, um, with just nothing really to offer um, but myself, which is just such an unworthy offering, but um, I, I just cling to the words of this song when Satan tempts me to despair uh, and tells me of my guilt. Up, Upward I look and see you there, Lord Jesus who made an end of all my sin. Um, And so we rejoice and we celebrate in the resurrection and we celebrate what you've done and making us worthy even though we were not. And so I just ask as I come to your word and I have this huge uh, challenge ahead to teach your word in a way that your people are encouraged and build up, I just ask for your help. I ask that your spirit would fill me and empower me to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is the cry of our heart. That is the passion of the church, that we would give you glory and bring you glory by by doing ministry. And and that starts here in my equipping, uh, but it doesn't end here. Uh, Then taking it to the world, that's where it ends. So I just pray that you'll help me to do that, Lord, by your spirit and for your name's sake. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. Go ahead in your Bible and turn to Ephesians 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you somewhere. Grab it. We're on page, I believe, 364. Or 634, excuse me, is where we're at. 634. Um, and we're going to continue in our series on Ephesians. We've been in this book for seven, eight weeks now. And really, kind of the highlight has been who we are in Christ. We've, we've, we've entitled it Identity. Um, because really, the first several chapters talk about who we are in Christ. We were in Adam, and in and, and chapter 2 we talked about we were dead in our sins, and we were objects of wrath, and we were uh, following the enemy, and, and we had no hope. We were in darkness but in Christ, our identity is that we have been chosen and we have been adopted and we've been forgiven and we've been made wise. And we are put in this body, the church, and he is building us up for his glory by his spirit. And all these benefits about being in Christ. And the first three chapters are just loaded with all these, these great truths about who we are, where our identity lasts and rests. But in chapter four, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there's now a change of direction where he's been talking about all this great stuff. There hasn't been any commands yet. That changes in chapter 4. And he says, "...now, in light of who you were..." And William did such a great job at kind of encouraging us. "...in light of all these things in your identity, now I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling." And there's this idea, this word worthy, it's the Greek word oxios. And, and it means to balance out the scales. Of Here is your calling. Now it's your job to balance out the scales. Not to earn your calling. Not to try to impress God. You cannot do that. But to walk in light of who you are. Here's your identity." Balance out the scales. And the first thing that William unpacked for us a couple weeks ago, that shirt tucked in, those solid colored shorts, that that first thing he shares with the church is, I want you to be unified. I want you to be one, right? That's the very first thing, what it means to walk in a manner worthy. Well, today we're going to move on and we're going to see the second thing. And it's kind of related. The first thing is to be unified. The second thing is as a church, as a unified church, now I want you to grow. What does a worthy calling look like? What is living out your identity? It means that as a church, we are growing. And I'm not talking about numbers. All right? I'm talking about maturity. We're talking about spiritual growth. Look, there's a million and, and ten books out there on how to grow a church. I got an email this week. You need this tool. The top 100 growing churches in America are using this tool and blah, 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 blah. And great. Maybe the tool is great. Maybe it's useful. But in the end, what does Jesus say about growing the church? We're not interested in growing the masses. We're interested in growing the individual, the body of Christ, the people who God has put here. All right. And this is one of those texts. It is not flashy. There's no snakes on a pole. All right. There's no exciting. Woo. Miracles, you know, Red Sea parting. But it is one of the me- the most essential texts in the New Testament when it comes to the church that there is. I mean, this is like the heart of, of ecclesiology, the study of the church. This is your text. And so maybe there's no snake on a pole and maybe there's no great illustrations. But this text is critical. If we're going to be a church, CBC, that balances the scales. If we're going to be growing. So let's look at what Jesus says about how to grow the church. How, how does he grow his church, and we're just going to simply walk through verses seven through sixteen, and we're going to look at His plan, and I have two big takeaways for you this morning. What is what does that mean for you sitting there in the green chair this morning? All right, so let's start. Let me read the first couple of verses because this is where we see the first thing He's doing. Verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led host a host of captives, and He gave gifts. To men, And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Two big things that Jesus does in these just short verses. You hear a lot of talk about gifts and giving and gave and all these things. Two big things that Jesus does in his church. First one is in verse 7. It says grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now when he's talking about grace there, it's not the same exact meaning as what he usually uses the word grace. By grace you have been saved or you've been saved because of grace. It's, it's related, but the context, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, is gifts. Your gift, your, is it is grace to get a gift, but the context is spiritual gifts actually. All right? In fact, the word for grace in the Greek is charis. The word for gifts is charisma. It's related, right? We get our English word charismatic, charisma from that thing. You go to other places in the scripture where Paul or Peter are talking about gifts. And they say each one has received a charisma, a gift. Paul says we all have different charisma, different gifts. In Corinth, he says there's a variety of different gifts, charisma. And the idea here is that you have grace, but it's grace that you have actually a giftedness. Right? And who gets them? What does the verse say? Who gets this grace? Who gets these gifts? Each one. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to understand that. All right? Each one means everyone. The whole kit and caboodle. If you were a follower of Jesus, if the Spirit of God lives in you, then grace was given to you. A grace gift, if they have been called, has been given to you. All right? And when we talk about spiritual gifts... Here's our kind of working definition that we talk about. It's a supernatural ability, and we'll see this again, so if you can't get it all in one, it's all right. But it's a supernatural ability from the Holy Spirit given by God's grace to every believer at conversion, and it's used to exalt Christ by building up his body. That's what we're talking about when we talk about spiritual gifts. And the first kind of thing that we see in this text that Paul highlights is that Jesus gives gifts to people. Each one, Peter says, to each one received a special gift. And maybe you're saying, you know what? I've seen gifted people, and I've seen you guys, and I see what y'all do, and there's other guys, and I see these ladies over here, and everyone seems gifted. I just don't i don't think I have a gift. I just don't feel very gifted sometimes, right? Well, that's why you have verses 8 through 10. Look what he says. This validates what he's just said. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, what's all that about? What's all this ascending, descending, blah, 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 giving gifts? It's kind of real. Actually, it's very tough. No, this is one of the tougher passages of the New Testament. But here's what's going on. When he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He's actually quoting loosely Psalm 68. In fact, this whole section is a loose kind of quotation of the Psalm 68. And in that Psalm, if you go back and read it, it's this Psalm about this king who's ascending Mount Zion as the victorious general, the victorious winner of a battle. And what would happen in those days when your king would go out to battle, if he would win... He would come back into the city and they'd throw this grand parade and the king would ride in on his white horse and behind him would be all the soldiers with their shields and their swords and their battle array and in formation and everyone's cheering and and yelling and and congratulating them and behind them would be the captives. Maybe those who they rescued, maybe those who they conquered and they'd be chained and they'd be just stripped them down to nothing and kind of pull them behind the parade as if to say, we're better than them. We beat them. Our king beat their king, right? And then behind them, they would have all the spoils of war, all the donkeys and all the horses and all the cattle and all the sheep and all the wagons of just stuff, right? The spoils of the victory. And what the kings would do in those days, if you were one of his soldiers or you were one of the citizens of his town, if, if he wins, he, if you identify with him as king, he might give you a gift as a spoil of war. So if your king wins, you might get a goat. Maybe you get a necklace. Maybe you get a servant. Maybe you get a cow. Whatever it is, the proof that your king won was that you got a gift. Right? And so what Paul is doing here is he's he's tying that in with Jesus. He's picturing Jesus as this, this victorious Christ who is ascending back into heaven and he's leading this host of captives who he's rescued and he's redeemed. And the proof that he won, the proof that he had victory over death, victory over sin, victory over Satan, that he died as the perfect substitute for your sin and rose again. The, the proof of all that is that he gives gifts. And so if you say, well, I just don't feel like I'm gifted. I don't know if I have a gift. Is Jesus alive? Yes, he is. He is and you have a gift. And that's where he's going. He's trying to validate, look, Jesus gave gifts, and the proof is that he's alive. Now, there's a little bit of a, you know, parenthetical thought here, and and the ESV does a good job putting it in parentheses in verse 9. and saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended in the lower parts of the earth? And there's articles and lots of commentators in ink spill on what does it mean that he just descended into the earth? All right, and there's all these different views. My understanding is that when he talks about he descended into the earth, he's talking about into the grave. He was dead in the grave, and then he came out. Now, I may be wrong, but the point of the passage is not necessarily the descension, it's the ascension. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all things. Why? That he might fill all things. The point is, he won, that he is the sovereign king of kings, that he fills all things. And because he won, you have a gift, at least according to Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit. All right? Jesus gives people gifts. But that's not all he gives. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, and the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. Not only does Jesus give gifts to people, but Jesus gives people as gifts. You see that again? He gave pastors and teachers and all these things. Right? How many of you know that people are gifts? It's not just people have gifts, but people are gifts. If you found a wife, you found a good thing. Right? If you have children, they are a blessing. The fruit of the womb. People are gifts. God gives people as gifts to the church. Some of you are great gifts to the church. Some of you are great challenging gifts to the church. But everyone is a gift. And that's important to understand because if you see people only as gifted, then you'll use them for their gifts but not appreciate them for who they are. But when you see them as a person, you will not just appreciate their function. You'll love and appreciate them. As a person, people are gifts. God gives gifted people and he gives people as gifts. And he mentions four foundational gifts in this text. All right. He says he gave the apostles. And not only is this the original 12 and Paul and Barnabas and a couple others, but there's a spiritual gift of apostleship. And what this might look like today, the word apostle just means a sent one. What this might look like today is someone who is just has an ability uh, to, to start ministries or to pioneer in the name of Jesus, maybe start churches. It's a necessary gift when you go out and starting churches or, or starting new things in the church. And so there's this gift of apostleship, which is foundational. And there's prophets. And although we don't have these, these foretelling prophets like Isaiah or Hosea or Obadiah or Amos anymore that are kind of telling what's going to happen because we have the, the complete canon of Scripture, there is a sense where we have those folks in the church now They're able to take the truth of the word of God and apply it to a specific situation in such a way that it's just like God spoke to me. So you have an issue, you have a struggle, you don't know what to do. You go to this person, they say, here's what God's word says. This is what you need to do. That would be a modern expression of like a modern day prophet. Just telling you, using the word of God in just an extremely relevant way and so that you're able to go and follow it, right? You have the evangelists, those who are just gifted by God to share the gospel. Everywhere they go, they just get into conversations about Jesus. Everywhere they go, they're encouraging people. Hey, have you invited anyone to church? Hey, have you, have you talked about Christ to this person? It's just that that's their passion. That's their giftedness. God's just given it to them. It's amazing to see. They can get in the conversation at the Piggly Wiggly in the line between skim milk and bread about Jesus, right? And then there's the pastor teachers, and it's, I think, one gift here. Those who are not only... The role of pastor, but they've actually been gifted as pastors and/slash teachers. They're able to shepherd and teach the word of God and care for the souls of the flock. And these are foundational gifts that Jesus gives his church. And we'll see why in a minute. But here's the big first takeaway about Jesus giving people gifts and Jesus giving gifts as people. It's this: you, church, are gifted. If you are a follower of Jesus, then it means you are gifted. Now, maybe you've heard nothing about that in your entire life. Maybe all you've heard from your parents or your spouse or your boss that you are useless. You can't do anything right. And then all you've heard about is how you messed up and how you fail and how you let everyone down. And maybe that's all you ever hear. But I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of the Scripture that Jesus himself has gifted you in some way. I me mean, think about that. There's 7 billion people on the earth right now. I don't know how many billion have ever lived. But of all the billions of people, Jesus the Savior, with you in mind, specifically gave you gifts. Not, and it's not just random like the guy at the St. Patrick's Parade just throwing out Woo, some teachers. Woo, look, like, Here we go. Let's go. Mercy over there. Everyone go get the mercy. and follow, you know Get on the ground and get it. With you in mind, knowing who you would marry, how many children you would have, every job you'd ever be in, every church you'd ever be in, every small group you'd ever function in, every ministry you would ever go, every location that you would ever live on this earth. With you in mind and all that knowledge, Jesus the Savior gave you specific gifts to you. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? And so if you ever question that, if you ever feel like, I just... I, I don't feel like that's true. I don't feel like I'm gifted. Just ask the question, is Jesus alive? Did He win? And if He did, then you're gifted according to the Word of God. Right? And so so you go back to our, our definition. Right? Let me see if I can find it here. It's an ability... A supernatural ability from God, the Holy Spirit, and, and I don't use those words—that that word "supernaturally" in a cavalier way. Right? I'm not just kind of, ooh, it's, you know, supernatural. It's a supernatural thing. Why? Because God, the Holy Spirit, gave it to you at conversion when the Holy Spirit came and lived in your heart. Right? That it's it's a, it's God from the outside putting in you. It's different than a natural ability. Some of you are great singers, but quite honestly, you were great singers before you got saved. Some of you are lousy singers before you're saved. You still are. That's okay. There's a difference between a natural gift and a spiritual gift. Some of you are great athletes because your genetics or because dad worked with you. Some of you are brilliant. And you got great minds and you could do all these things. Some of you are great writers. Some of you are great artists. Some of you are just, you know, passionate about this. Those are, those are natural gifts. Now, those are from God too. And they can be used for his glory. You're not saying it shouldn't be. And you actually should. But a spiritual gift is different. It's something that came at conversion. It was not a part of who you were. And now it is because the God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he puts it inside. He said, well, how do I figure out these gifts? How do I know what they are? There's four places in the scripture that you can find the lists of the script. And there's no one complete list. You got to add them up through different places. Real easy. There's two twelves and two fours. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. There's the gifts. Is there more? Some people say, well, there's more that aren't listed. Well, I'm not going to go beyond Scripture and say there are. I'm not going to limit God and say there's not. But those are at least there. Right? And if you go to those places, you're going to see... You're not going to see the gift of criticism. I'm sorry. Believe it or not. The gift of sarcasm is not one of them. What you're going to see is gifts of mercy. Encouragement. Teaching prophecy evangelism hospitality administrations giving leadership no gift of youth ministry that would be a place where you exercise gifts right but it's not the gift of being a great nursery worker right you might have the gift of service and that's why you're a great nursery worker gift of mercy whatever it is but those are the those are what you're going to see so how can i figure out my gifts how can I discover how it is God's created me? You know, you can go online and Google it and there's all these tests and you always seem to come out like Billy Graham at these tests. Everybody's like Billy Graham, you know. But here, the reality is this. The best way to discover your gifts is just trial and error. Just jump in somewhere, two feet. You end up getting in a fight, handing out bulletins, you probably aren't a hospitality guy. <laughs> all right, just, just saying. You know, you get in a fight with a three-year-old at the nursery over a Troy truck probably not a, not, that's not your thing, right? That's okay. Go to a place and you find that people are like, you know what? We love you, but we need you to stop. (laughs) Then you go to someplace else until you find a place that God has gifted you. And it's funny when you get in those places, once you're there, there's something about it. You're like, wow, this is kind of energizes me. There's something about this. People are blessed. I'm here. There's there's something that is going on here and it's, and it's beyond me. Right, and that's the way it is, and that's the cool thing about serving in your area of giftedness. You don't find—I've never seen a person that's spiritually gifted in an area and they're miserable doing that. Oh, I got the gift of mercy. Got to go to the hospital. Ah, oh, I gotta pray for people now. Right? Oh, I'm an evangelist, but I hate—I hate talking to people. You just don't see it. That's what gets them excited. People say, "How do you do three services?" It's, it's such a long—it is a long day, but this energizes me. Am I tired on Yeah, I am, but this I I like this. This is what God has created me to do. And so I do it. And there's something about serving in the area God has given you that it just energizes you. Right? And it's satisfying to see the Holy Spirit use you when you are just you get out of the way and let him use you. It is a satisfying thing. And so when you find it that oh man, I I love making this meal for this person. I that might be your thing. You see a hole that we got all sorts of holes, and you're like, "Don't they see that hole?" We might not. That might not be our area of giftedness, but you might need to fill that hole, and that might be your area of giftedness, right? And so, I, there's joy and there's satisfaction, and, and understand there's different levels of giftedness too. One guy might be gifted at teaching, but he might be gifted at teaching a group of ten to fifteen, and that's how that's how God's gifted him. Otherwise, he, another guy might be gifted; he can teach fifteen hundred, and that's okay. Because God is the one who gives the gifts. God is the one who gives the growth. We plant, we sow, we water. God brings the growth. And so there's no envy. There's no need for jealousy. Just because this guy's able to lead six people really well, and this guy's able to lead 600, that's a God thing. If if the source is God, and he's the one who brings the growth, and he's the one who chooses according to his measure, the measure of Christ's gifts is what it says, then there's no reason to be jealous and envious. See, this is, and it's, it's an important to understand. And he says it back there in verse, what is it? In verse 11, it says, he gave, and it's emphatic in the Greek text. You can underline it in your Bible. It's literally he himself gave. And it's important because man's heart and nature constantly wants to worship the creation rather than the creator. That's what we do. I got a gifted athlete. I want to worship them. I got a gifted musician. I want to worship them. I got a gifted teacher. I want to be like him. And we always gravitate to those. And we, what we end up doing is if we, if we forget that God is the one who does these things, is we'll worship him. It's the nature of your heart. Your heart is an idol making factory, it's a constantly doing it. And if, if you don't believe me, remember last week, for those who were there, we talked about the snake on the pole. Guess what Israel did? As soon as the snake on a pole story is done, they turned the snake on a pole into an idol. And they have worship in it. They worship the snake in a pole. And so a couple hundred years later, Hezekiah has got to ground the thing into dust. Makes them drink it. All right? Because they're worshiping the snake on a pole. That's the way our hearts work. And so it's important. God is the one who gives the gifts. So don't worship the gift. Don't worship the person who has it. Right? It's vital for us to get. And don't find your identity in your gift. Your identity is in Christ. It's not in your role. It's not in your giftedness. Because if your identity is in your gift, what's going to happen when this guy's better at it than you? You're going to be envious. What's going to happen when this guy, and you see this happen all the time, when everything is built around one, one spectacular leader or teacher, and that guy leaves, then the whole thing falls apart because it wasn't built on the rock of Christ. It was built on this guy. Right? The church is built on Christ, and he is gifted. So our identity is in him. And that's not to say you can't get your gift refined. You should refine your gift. You should cultivate it. If you're a leader, you should start small and work your way up and learn to be a leader of more. If you're a teacher, you don't just show up and say, well, I got the gift of teaching. Did you study? No, I got the gift of teaching. You don't have the gift of wisdom, apparently. Because teachers study. And you work hard and you refine your gift so you get better and better. And that is the way we do it. Once you discover that giftedness. But again, it's all from God. And this is how he's designed to grow a church. First thing, you're gifted. He has given you gifts. He's given the church gift. You are gifted. And that's not just so you feel good about yourself. There's a purpose. Let's look back at the text, verse 12. And again, there's a running argument here, right? And let me just highlight this to you. Verse 12 is, in my opinion, and it doesn't mean anything, but it is my opinion, the most important verse in the entire New Testament when it comes to ecclesiology. This little verse, I don't even know how many words, 9, 10, 12 words, is one of the most essential verses in all the New Testament about what the church is about. About what we're supposed to be doing. Alright? And there's three words I want you to... whoo, Somebody's not happy about that, right? Three words I want you to circle. Three little prepositions. The word two, the word four, and the word four. They kind of help unpack this verse. So the idea of verse 11, he gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers... Why? verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. All right. All right. So you have two. What's the first kind of idea behind that? The purpose God gives leaders. God gives apostles. God gives teachers. Why? To equip the Now this word equip, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament is right here. It's used outside the Bible a ton. But this is the only time in the New Testament. And the idea behind it is this. Outside the Bible, it's found 47 times in a medical manual. A manual by a bone doctor in the early, early centuries. Who would reset shoulders back in joints. Who would reset a bone after it's broke. And when he would reset that bone or put that shoulder back in joint, they would use this word, this equip word. The idea is setting it right, getting it ready for something, putting it back in its place so that it's ready to be used, right? It's, It's just a great, rich word. It's actually used in another place of preparing a room or decorating a room and preparing a garment to be used. And the idea is it's preparation. It's getting it ready for something. So follow his line of thought. God gives leaders, leaders equip, they put the shoulder back in, they get the bone right. Who do they do that to? The saints, who are the saints? Y'all are the saints. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. And what are they preparing the saints for? There's your second word you circled, for. For the work of ministry. That word ministry is a real fancy word. It just means service. It's the word diakonon. We get the word deacon from it. It just means to serve. Right? So follow the logic. Jesus gives gifted men, gifted men equip Saints, What do saints do? The work of ministry. Who does ministry? The saints do ministry. And what does ministry look like? There's a last word. For the building up of the body of Christ. Ministry is just building the body. There's our maturity. Growing the body. And how do you do that? By using your gifts. That he gave you back earlier. I mean, Think about the progression here. Here it is. Real simple. Jesus gives gifted leaders. Those leaders then... Equip. They get the shoulder right. They set the bone. They prepare. They teach. They encourage. They rebuke. They admonish. They do all those things. And then the saints, in light of that, do ministry. That is the plan. That is the progression. And again, we go back to our, our definition. It's a supernatural ability from the Holy Spirit given by God's grace to every believer at conversion. Used to exalt Christ. How? By building up His body, the church. So who does ministry? The saints. Who is responsible to grow and mature the church? The saints by God, the Holy Spirit. It's a simple plan. You are not only gifted, but you are called church to ministry. You are called to ministry. You feel like, oh, I I never felt the call. Never, never felt the call. Well, you've been called right there. That was it. Right? Feel that powerful, Right? you have been called to ministry. If you are a saint, you are called to do ministry, right? And there is a thought and a line of thought in churches today, and it's killing pastors and it's killing churches, that leaders exist to serve the body. And yes, leaders do serve the body. And I'm not saying a servant is not greater than his master, Jesus says. The leaders are supposed to serve the body. But their purpose is their sole purpose is not just to do everything. And there's this mindset in churches where something goes wrong, Call the leaders. Someone needs to pray for a meal? Call the leaders. Someone needs to go do this? Call the leaders. And if that was Jesus' plan for the church, then why does he give everybody a gift and not just give like 10 people gifts? Because the goal of the church is not just these five, six folks to do everything. It's the body to function as a body. And when you understand that everyone's got gifts and everyone's got purpose, Jesus' words make a ton of sense when he says, you know what? It's better for me to go away then I'm going to send the spirit who's going to glorify me. When Jesus is on the earth, he's got all the gifts. He wants to show mercy. Boom. He goes, and shows mercy. He wants to heal someone. Boom. He goes and heals someone. He wants to share the gospel. Boom. He goes and shares the gospel. He wants to meet a need. Boom. He goes, and meets a need, but he ascends to heaven, victorious over Satan and death. And he says, now I give you these things. So if this person needs mercy, they need a hug, they need a card, they need encouragement. I send you. And this person over here has a financial need. Oh, I send you. And that person over there at Gulfstream, they need the gospel, and I send you. And that mom needs to be taught how to be a good mom to those little kids, I send you. He sends his church. The body does ministry. And it's brilliant. And it's not that we have, oh, i got to do ministry. You get to be a part of growing people and maturing people and see them become faithful followers of Jesus. That's not a have to, that is a, I get to do that. Because when you're in your giftedness and your passion, it brings great satisfaction. And the way that works here at CBC, we've tried to model the New Testament as best we can. We have a board of elders, and these elders, they pray for, and they shepherd, and they they try to cast the spiritual vision based on Scripture of where we're going as a church. This is what God wants us to do. We're going to stay doctrinally pure and try to stay these things. And we're trying to lead our people. And they have a staff that's under them, and this staff is full-time at it 40 plus hours a week trying to teach and equip and train and raise up leaders trying to set the shoulder and trying to set the bone and look we're lightly staffed right now we have three full-time pastors and a couple support staff full-time and a bunch of part-timers that's going to change this summer we've hired two new folks that are coming on this summer for those who have been here for a year or so, you remember Ethan Montesinos, who's one of our interns for a while. He went back to finish his Bible college, and now he's coming back, and he's going to lead the high school and the middle school, starting in July, him and his wife. So they're coming back, and we'll get to see them. Peter's been gone for a couple months now, preaching up in Connecticut in the snow, right? We're not, we weren't anxious to just fill a hole, because we had a hole. We wanted to wait for God's guy. We prayed, we prayed, and God brought us our guy. And he's going to come in July. His name's Gary. He'll be here in a couple weeks. Him and his wife and their the little baby girl. Right now, he works for the uh, FBI, and he's a, a Marine Corps officer in the reserves. And he is coming down. He's stepping out of the FBI to come be our pastor of community, right? So he'll be here in July. Lord willing, he prays sells his house. He's up in the DC area, but he's going to come visit periodically. You will get to see him. Um, he looks like a marine, a redheaded marine. I'll tell you, <laughs> it's good stuff. And so God has brought some men to help equip and some ladies on staff to help equip. And it's our job to encourage you and come alongside you and to raise you up and to put you in places that you can can do ministry. And when we talk about ministry, let's just talk about that term for a minute. Because once, sometimes we hear ministry and we immediately think nursery, right? That's what ministry means, nursery. And certainly that is ministry. And we need people in that ministry, right? We need people. But let's be honest. What we do here on a Sunday morning is like, 90 minutes of your life. If you save for two services, you know, three hours. And there's ministry to be done here. Yes. And we, we ask all the people that are members to do one thing. Not seven things. Just do one thing. Maybe it's serving a nursery every fifth week. Maybe it's hand out bulletins. The coffee ministry, essential to life as we know it. Right? People being security, people walking around, people doing parking that's going to come up. And there's, yes, there's little things to be done here. But this is just like this much of life. This is not the end-all, be-all of ministry. This is, for lack of a better illustration, this is practice. The game begins when you walk out the door. And this is quite honestly why we don't have a lot going on here. Because we love you, but we don't want you here. We want you out there. Right? We do very few things. We've got our neighborhood ministry we need you a part of. But we don't want you here Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Because if you're here then, guess what? Then daddies are not reading to their kids at night. And they're not taking their wife on a date ever. They're not coaching Little League. You're not meeting with men at work. Your employees, asking them how their families are. You're not down at, at, at Forsyth Park throwing frisbee with some lost folks. You're not talking to that guy at the coffee shop if you're always thinking about, oh, i got to go to the next Bible study. And there's nothing wrong with Bible studies and there's nothing wrong with these things. But we don't want you here because ministry is there. Your kids are your ministry. Your spouse is your ministry. Your work at Gulfstream, at Target, at whatever car dealership you work at whatever cubicle you're in your office at home that is your ministry that is where god has placed you and if god has called you the church to be his ambassador to be appealing to people to be reconciled to god if he's given us the job to be the to reveal the manifold wisdom of god to the world then it's not going to take place for nine minutes in here because quite honestly most of y'all are on our team i mean right we're here because we're on their team. So we can pro- proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to each other till our, till our faces turn blue. But out there is where he's called us to go. And what the world is really sick of is, is a people that come together and talk about how great Jesus is. But they go out and then they show up on Monday morning and they're a bunch of jerks. And they don't love each other. And they certainly don't love the people there. And they're mean bosses. And, and they're unkind to their spouse and they're yelling at their kids all the time the world's kind of sick of it why did it come to my church we love Jesus but I don't like you very much and so we have to get this mindset of yes we serve each other here and we build each other up here but then we go and we scatter for building up of the body for building it, for seeing new people come to faith, to take the name of Jesus. And yes, we gather in the middle of the week, some of us, and we go to houses and we encourage one another and we share our struggles and so we can pray for one another. That's so we can go out again. And yes, we're, and we're broken. And most of us have fights with our spouse and most of us have kids that disobey and most of us at sometimes don't do our best at work. And the difference is we repent, we embrace the gospel again, we seek to change and then we move on. We don't just blame everybody else right? That's, that's what Paul's saying is balancing out the scales. We're not looking for a group of perfect people because it would be empty and the stage would certainly be empty. But what we're looking for is people who are calling the name of Christ. That's, that's who they are. I am a follower of Jesus and I'm going to take that name of Jesus outside these walls. I'm going to take it where I am. I'm I'm going to fail and I'm going to own it. And I'm going to fail and I'm going to own it. And I'm going to, in my brokenness, love my neighbor who doesn't weed his beds. And I'm going to, in my brokenness, embrace my spouse who hurts my feelings sometimes. And I'm going to love him anyway. And my spouse is not a Christian. I'm going to love him anyway. And we're just moving along together. And we come together and we encourage one another as long as today is still called today. So we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then we continue to press on. That's what the church does. That's what we do. And if your vision of following Jesus is sitting in a green chair, stoking a check, and singing a song, and then you go and live your life the way you want, then this is not the church for you. Because we don't have that many empty chairs. And we're not perfect, but we just want a group of people who are willing to build into each other so that we can build into the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Your Christianity is not 90 minutes, it's not serving in the nursery, it's a life. Of following Christ. You are called to ministry. Right? You are called and you are gifted to do so. That's how the body builds itself. There's not like some great, grandioso 10 steps to building the church. God given you gifts and he's called you to ministry. Go do it. And if you're not gifted over there, but you're gifted over here, spend your time over here. And you may have to do that until someone's raised up, but do that. But reach those people who need Jesus. And encourage one another as long as they stay. That's building the church, and we're pursuing that. And how long are we supposed to do that for? Verse thirteen tells us: until we all attain to the unity of the faith, all of us, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the What's the end game? It's maturity. What's the goal? To be like Christ. Everything comes back to Christ. Every ministry that is fruitful and faithful always comes back to Christ. And if it doesn't come back to Christ, it is not Christian ministry. It may be something good. It may be something fine. But it is not Christian unless it's rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. And you're doing it for that. That is Christian ministry. Maturity is the goal. Manhood is the goal. And he specifically uses this Greek word man, not anthropos, which is general mankind. He uses the Greek word aner, man, A full-grown man is literally what it says. And the idea is this. He doesn't want little boys. He doesn't want little kids. He wants maturity. He wants manhood. Look, there's nothing sadder than a 29-year-old wearing wrestling pants in his parents' basement playing eight hours of video games a day, waking up at one in the afternoon. That is pitiful. But what's equally as pitiful is a church filled with little people that just... I have three boys. I know what little boys argue about. That's my... I go you have more fruit loops than me he touched me yeah, you know that's the that's when you see that in the church it's pitiful the goal is manhood the goal is growth the goal is maturity like who cares if you got 20,000 people if everyone's babies 20,000 babies is a nightmare <laughs> right it's a nightmare so fighting and wrestling and dirty diapers and everything else that's not fun i love my kids I love spending time with them. I want them to leave one day. All right? I I do. Even though I love them, I want them to leave. I want them to bring brand babies back and take them back home too. But I love them. That's the goal for the church, that people will grow and mature. That's the goal. How does it happen? God gives gifts. God gives gifts to people. They do ministry. People grow. And so he tells us what maturity looks like. Just kind of three things. And just kind of write these in the back of your mind, because this is what we want from you and we want you to do in other people. These kind of three, it's not all maturity is, but here's three good pictures of what maturity looks like. Verse 14. He says, so that we may no longer be children. All right, there's that image again. Tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says, I don't want you like little kids. Little kids are easily influenced. Just bribe them with some bubble gum candy. You got them. Right? In my house, if the older kids want something, they get tripped to do it the four-year-old. Send the four-year-old in. He's like the, you know, Navy SEAL for the kids. You know, go in undercover. He goes in at 6 a.m. to ask the parents, can we have... You know, because they know they won't beat the four-year-old, right? <laughs> he's too cute. Right? So they send in the little guy. He's so easily influenced. He'll do whatever you ask him to. Yeah, climb up on his bed and go get this. Yeah, I'll do it. Go into the... Field. Yeah, I'll do it. He's, he's easily carried away because that's what little kids are. He says, no, that's not the way it should be in the church. When they come to your door and say, yeah, we believe the same thing as you you're not carried away oh yeah maybe they do maybe they really do they talk about jesus we talk about jesus when some big whoever you name preacher comes out and says well we need to really redefine marriage as long as there's love as long as that we need to redefine it in the christian church we really don't we just really don't the bible is very clear and we'll get into this in chapter five so don't you know this is not a sermon that we'll cut we'll get there but you don't, there needs to be not this, car- oh, every emotional experience, and I'm always, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Jesus doesn't love me, I don't feel loved. So, quite honestly, some of us in this church, not everybody, but some of you need to turn off the computer, turn off the TV, and just read, to read your Bible once in a while. Because you're being deceived by every wind of doctrine, and the enemy is crafty, and he's got nothing but time. And he's slowly, slow. He doesn't do everything fast. He's very slow and he's very purposeful. And if you do not know the truth, there's a maturity and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what verse 13 says. And so maturity looks like this. We're not a church that's easily, easily deceived. The people in the church are not easily taken over here, taken over there. Every new thing. That's one sign of maturity. We want you to help in that. You see a person that's kind of, no, that, that's not true. That's not good. Go, go talk to them. Hey, encourage them. Hey, this is what the Scripture says. This is what it says. That's one thing in maturity. Look at verse 15. Here's another one. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, into the head, into Christ. There's there's truth being spoke. In love, there's, there's, there's loving relationships. A mature, true person and people have loving relationships where you have the ability to speak truth. We do great at speaking truth without love, and we do great at loving without truth. We need to combine the two. Have the freedom to speak. And if you are not in some way connected to other people who love Jesus, that have the freedom to speak into your life, why? Is it either because you're hiding and you don't want them to speak truth in your life and you want to be able to continue to do? Some people don't want accountability because they want to live their lives the way they want. That's not the local church. It's knowing one another. It's it's being able to speak truth and say, hey, you probably shouldn't be dating them. But I love them. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. Just having that freedom to talk to people. Hey, before you move your family to Arkansas, have you thought about this? Is this is this what God is doing? Before you can, you know, leave this job you've been at for three weeks for this next one, is that a wise decision? And just having the freedom to talk into each other's lives, loving relationships, right? Having those accountable places to talk to each other. Right And and look, people get mad at churches, churches like this all the time, because someone has an accident or someone gets hurt or someone has a need and, and the church doesn't know about it or doesn't show up at the hospital. And the reason we don't is probably because you're not known. And no one's telling us. There's people that have surgery and I find out after they get out of the hospital, I'm like, oh, I didn't know it. I would have gone and visited. Oh, we took care of it. Because they were known and they had those people. And as soon as they got home, there was meals. And as soon as this, they're babysitters. Because they were known. And if you're not connected in any way, how can you expect people to meet the needs? And how do you expect to have people speak in truth? And so it's a vital part of loving relationships. And finally, verse 16 it says, From whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint, which is what it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. And notice the words the whole body, in every joint, in each part, there's full participation. And a healthy body. If there's 5,000 people and three people are doing everything, that's not healthy. If there's five people and five people are doing things, that's healthy. You have something. It might be a big thing. It might be a little thing that the church. Somebody needs it. It might just be you sitting with your arm around your spouse on a Sunday and singing, and someone sees that, and that encourages them. It might be you going afterwards and praying for somebody. You have something... And when the body has not doesn't have full participation, think about your body. Just knock out one part, left arm, boom, gone. You function well like that? How many, how many people do? Take out just a little part. Take your left eyelid out. And everyone's got this dried eye, they can't see anything, right? Just a little part, like an eyelid. It doesn't function right. The body suffers. Your thumb, your ear, that's us. That's the illustration that Paul gives in Romans and in, in 1 Corinthians. The body, one part can't say, Oh, I'm a good eye. And you're a bad foot. No, you need, you need everything. And if one part is not functioning right, look, the thumb doesn't make a good eyelid. Right? It just doesn't. The eyelid makes a good eyelid. The foot doesn't make a good hand. The foot does. And you might just be a little little piece of the puzzle, but you are needed. You might be in a, in a small group out there and that one person just needs you to pray with them weekly. Or you might be someone that's just writing a card or a letter. Or maybe you're just taking someone's kid for a service so that they can sit for peace and quiet for one time during the week. Whatever it is, you play a vital role in the body. And it's essential. And if God has gifted you in that area and called you, it is not insignificant just because you're not out front doing it. The body grows when you understand that you're gifted and that you get involved and you're called. And so the question is this what does that look like for you? If you're engaged and you have community and you're serving, please don't go sign up for three more things. That's the worst thing you could do. If you got loving relationships and people are speaking truth and you have a place where God is calling you, do it and do it well. That's what we ask. If you're going this is your church, you're committed to this place. And you're just kind of, right now, I'm, I just don't know what to do. Hey, call us, fill out one of those cards, circle it. Hey, this might be an area that I'm interested in. I, I, I live out here. I don't know anybody. We'll throw you in a group that maybe meets near your house. We'll help you as best as we can. But you got to take the initiative. We can't call 800 people and say, what have you been doing lately for Jesus? You got you to take a little bit of initiative and we'll help you as best we can. We're not going to start 73 new ministries just because of the sermon, just so you know. We're going to do what we've been doing until we do it real well and then maybe we'll think about starting something new we're going to put you in places of community and we're going to put you under the bible as best we can and we're not the best at it I promise but we're going to do our best by the, by the gifts God's given us and I'm telling you it is exciting to see Jesus moving in people's lives it is exciting to see people's lives change it's exciting and if you're not a part of that in any way man you're missing out you're just missing out of exciting stuff right it's good to see people's lives change. It's good to see people come to faith in Jesus. It's good to see little kids learning scripture. It's good to see parents loving each other. It's good to see people go to work and understand that that is a place where they make money for, and they go out and serve Jesus. That's just a place to pay the bills where they can do ministry and reach out and love people. It's good to see people's mindset change. It's not just building my 401k or a new garage. It's on building a kingdom. It's a good thing. And we'd love for you to be a part of it if that's where you, God's called you. So whatever way we can help, we'll try. We'll do our best. Let me pray, and then we'll worship. Father, I just thank you for your word. I just thank you for the goodness of the church. And it's your, your invention, your creation, your organization that you've put together by your spirit. Diverse, unified. Uh, it's just a beautiful picture of the gospel. How we come under the banner of Christ together, all one. I pray that this church would balance out the scales whatever that looks like individually. We want folks just faithfully serving you wherever they're at. And Lord, we have a lot of issues and we have a lot of brokenness and these sermons are not the best sermons and you know, these leadership team you put together is gifted, but we're certainly not the most gifted in the world. But we love you and we want to see your name taken through Savannah and beyond. So just help us to do that. We just pray for life change in our people and people beyond that we would reach those who you've called us to. We'd love them well. That we would build each other up in love. um, That we would be gracious with each other. And we got people that hurt each other's feelings. And, and, uh, you know, we're sinners just like the rest Lord. But let us come back to that that point that you call us to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. And so we'll give you the glory. uh, And we'll rejoice at what you're doing and what you're going to do through us by your grace and by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship?